Hello, and welcome back to Music Therapy and Beyond. Welcome also to a new year. This is our first episode of 2023, and we are just so excited for the year to come. We have made some pretty big changes around here that we hope will allow us to continue to do what we love, which is bring you quality content of music therapy-informed strategies and resources to support your work and life. We are now only going to be sharing one free episode per month, but if you want to receive more than that and be part of a bigger community, please consider joining our Patreon. We haven't asked for any financial support for everything that we've done up to this point, but to allow us to continue producing content, we are asking that you support us. For the cost of one cup of coffee a month, you get access to more episodes, bonus and extended content, and resources and discounts to our shop, so it's going to be a really fun, great place, and we are really excited to see how that community grows. Okay, for the month of January, on here and on our Patreon, we are looking at research. Today's episode features a special guest, J.D. Hogue. Together, we discuss the relevance of evidence in music therapy documentation. Now, I would like to clarify our verbiage a little bit before we get into the conversation. We repeatedly talk about evidence and data And when we say that, we're specifically referring to objective data or numerical data. This is not the same thing as documentation necessarily, um, because according to the Certification Board of Music Therapists and AMTA Standards of Ethics, we're all required to document our services on varying levels that are in alignment with our different facilities, organizations, and therapeutic purposes. We are not always required to collect objective data or numerical data in our documentation. And perhaps you primarily use patient reports, uh, pain scales, maybe pre and post session, narrative observations, etc. This conversation really hones in on the value of objective measures and how to use them regardless of your therapeutic aim or approach. Now, if you are someone who feels overwhelmed by numbers or doesn't understand how this kind of data collection could be useful, this is the episode for you. This also does not just apply to music therapists. As uh, you will learn more as we get to know JD a little bit in this episode, he also comes from the world of psychology, and um, he's been working with clinicians and, and therapists of different modalities and different disciplines, and so what everything that he's talking about and the resources that he wants to provide uh, are for a wide variety of clinicians. So we're all doing documentation of some kind, and so I feel this conversation um, will be relevant to a lot of different individuals. Now, let's meet our guest before we dive in. J.D. Hogue is a statistician and board-certified music therapist with over 10 years' experience combining data analysis, research, and program evaluation. J.D. has a Master of Science degree in Quantitative Psychology and another Master of Music degree in Music Therapy. He is also a consulting editor for Music Therapy Perspectives and is published in peer-reviewed journals such as Psychology of Music, Journal of Social Psychology, and Intersection. 
I'm really excited to bring you this conversation today. JD has a really unique skill set and a level of expertise in an area that we don't really talk about a lot in music therapy. His qualifications are a really unique cross-section, even cross-field intersection. So I found this conversation to be really intriguing and enlightening and gave me some great ideas, and I hope that you will feel the same way. Let's get into it. JD, welcome to Music Therapy and Beyond. We're very excited to have you on with us today. How are you? I'm excited to be on here today, too. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So thank you for allowing me to be here. Yeah, of course. So you are a music therapist and a statistician. That is not a combo that you hear of very often. Um, So tell us a little bit about how you became each of those identities and how we got here today. Sure. It's a kind of long and winding story that goes full circle. And every time I tell a music therapist about how I became a music therapist, they never really satisfied with the story. So um, let me let me kind of back up. So because I wanted to do it in high school, like I wrote a paper on it in high school English class. Um, I just intuitively saw how powerful and healing music could be. And I, I wanted to be a part of that. But where I went to undergrad, they didn't have a music therapy program. And I started in the music, the, the music department. It, it wasn't the right fit for me. And so I went to psychology and I thought, okay, music therapy, the idea of music therapy is just done. Um, so I ended up going on to my master's for quantitative psychology, which is the, the stats part of it. But they happened to have a music therapy program and I took classes on the side and then they liked me and I was a semester into it. So I, I just finished it. It took me another two years, but I finished it. Um, and then I became a board certified music therapist on top of being the statistician. Very cool. I first became familiar with your work um, in my master's program in one of my classes. Uh, my professor had included a video of yours on YouTube about how to take data as a music therapist. And I thought it was really cool. And the whole example was very functional. It was very usable, you know, user-friendly. And um, in the class, we were talking about the importance of clear data taking but that's not something that we often talk about in terms of statistics per se, of course, unless we're doing some kind of research project, but, but many music therapists are not researchers. And so you have a really unique niche in combining those two things. And that's something that you talk about a lot. So could you just kind of give us an intro to statistics and data in music therapy and why it matters? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first, I love that your professor was showing that video in class because <laughs> um, it takes it takes me at least a month to get one video up on my YouTube channel. Yeah. And so a ton of hard work really goes into it. And I, I want it to be a resource for music therapists and creative art therapists and just uh, people in general. So I love that it actually is being a resource. So that and makes will- me very happy. I will make sure that we link all of our listeners to that too. So that video, you anybody that's listening or watching can go check it out. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Um, but the go back to your question of essentially why do we need to take data in sessions? It, it goes back to being an evidence-based practice. We claim that we're an evidence-based practice, but if we're not taking the evidence to show it to other people, can we really be an evidence-based practice if we're not looking at the data and saying oh well this patient isn't progressing why maybe we need to change something or is that evidence-based and I, I i have a hard time justifying that if we're not um but we're also moving into more of an informatics driven world so collecting data looking at data we're seeing more statistics everywhere, and that's only going to get more and more prevalent. And if we're not taking data, we're going to get further and further behind. Yeah. Um, and just just in these last two weeks, I I, I talked to a non cancer nonprofit and to, to a school of music at the university, and both of them independently said we want to do something that's evidence based. Mm. So, and they looked at that my uh, portfolio at. Um, some of the research that I'm putting out there and some of my YouTube channels. And they're like, oh yeah, there is evidence for this. So they, they want to see the data. They want to see the numbers that we're not just pulling all of this out of our head. Right. And exactly. making it up as we go. And I found too, that, um, you know, one continual struggle that music therapists have and many creative arts therapists have is securing funding Um, And so when we start talking about funding and advocating for services, um, often we have to speak in numbers to people Mm -hmm. and showing numbers is, is, can be powerful. And even just um, similar to you, just this last week, I have been working with an organization on securing funding for um, services for someone and their administration said, we want to see data. And mm-hmm. I, of course, said, absolutely, <laughs> you know, and so <laughs> if if that's something that you're thinking about, then it's, it's great, but it can also be kind of overwhelming, I think, for a lot of music therapists. It can be about. because we're not trained to be researchers. So I, I do think we need more education, even continuing education on how to be consumers of research research, how to effectively collect data, how to manage data, um, how to read data. Because I, I see a lot of music therapists look at a graph and one, either not know how to interpret it, but to comp- interpret it completely incorrectly. Um, so it, that's a bit concerning for me. Um, but going back to your, your funding about wanting to see evidence, we need evidence for not only just grant funding, but for um, insurance companies. Insurance yeah. companies want to see the research so that they can fund, so they would be willing to fund it. Yep. Uh, I've seen accrediting bodies come back and say, you're great at looking at the individual, but we need data at the group level to mm-hmm. show that you're being effective at the group level. 
So I've come back and analyzed it, done inferential statistics to show what's happening at the group level and say, yes, we're making progress on average for uh, for the majority of people. And and this is how. Um, But my favorite thing about showing someone a graph is that they shut up. (laughs) They they stop talking. They become they they become receptive. It happens to me. It happens to everyone. (laughs) I start looking at a graph and I'm like, okay, what is this? What I start. I start taking things in instead of spewing things out. Mm. And when I, when I show someone a graph that happens and it gives me a chance to tell my story. Yeah. Which is a huge, and it gives me the chance to advocate for myself. I was going to say that's a huge opportunity for, for advocacy. And, um, as I'm wrapping up my master's program right now, actually, I was just, I was just reading a textbook about statistics and analysis and the authors were really just emphasizing the importance of communicating in in like language to different consumers of our research. So whether that is interpretivist or objectivist, we, we have to have clearly presented evidence for what we're doing so that they can understand and see um, at, at a glance the value of what we're doing, which is not to say that it can all be summarized in a graph, you know, there's, there's a lot of complexity to music therapy, but, but, um, it is very important (laughs) for what we do. Yes. Uh, And to your point about not being able to show everything in a graph, the data are one, they're never perfect. Sure. They're never, they're never going to tell the entire story. Yeah. Um, they, and they can really only speak to the things that you're collecting, but what they do an amazing job of is saying, this is what we we are seeing. So you can interpret that and say, what do we need moving forward? Uh, not only what do we need to collect moving forward, but what do we need to do moving forward for our patients, for ourselves? Um, because you can take that at the group level and say, oh, at large, maybe I'm not so great at teaching social skills. Yeah. But maybe I'm amazing at getting people to relax. Mm-hmm. So maybe I need some better training in social skills myself just just to throw that out as an example because often the data will surprise you about what they they want to tell you Um, and i always say that every data set tells a story you have to and it's a quiet story you have to be able to listen to it and sit still and let that story come to you Mm. yeah and that story can be very different than what you have in your head about what is happening Mm. which is really important as music therapists and as to to build in a, a reflexive practice and to really think about like how we are interacting with our whoever our groups our individuals our participants um i mean that's that's kind of a whole different area of ethics in terms of our clinical practice but i do think that the data reflects um equally on us as it does on our clients and what they're communicating to us, which is a really, mm-hmm. really thought provoking point about how we read it our is. And, data. It, and it can be, it can be scary too, because our own egos don't want to get that deep. <laughs> they don't want to yeah. say, Oh, I'm not being great at something, mm. but it's, it's just a mirror. It's just saying, Hey, this is, this is something that we need to look at and maybe we need to adjust it moving forward. Um, so that, we can improve ourselves just as much as we are improving our clients. Yeah. Which is ultimately 
how we become the most authentic therapists and clinicians that we can, which mm -hmm. will lead to our best practice. Yes. Which is so beneficial for our clients because if we're, and I talked about this on the podcast before, if we're practicing inauthentically, then we're doing not only ourselves, but our community is a great disservice. Mm -hmm. It's not just inauthentic practice. Uh, I, I, I want to tease that out just a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> The, the research is showing that we're not reading the research. We're not using the research. Mm -hmm. And that that's very concerning for, for me to be able to say that we're an evidence-based practice. Um, in fact, when I taught music therapy at a university, I, I flat out told the students, it's questionable that we are evidence-based. Um, now, the evidence-based could just be that we're collecting data in sessions and tracking that progress over time. But if, if our therapists aren't doing that, then, and they're not reading the research, then how can we possibly be evidence-based? Um, but the data can help us stand in our power and be authentic and say, yes, I'm amazing at this clientele. I can draw this clientele by projecting that data out and say, I, I can help you and be, be that authentic therapist. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I know that the conversation that you're alluding to about are we evidence-based, are we evidence-informed, it's kind of been ongoing for some time. Um, and it's not a reflection on that there isn't evidence for what we do, or some some individuals mm -hmm. are doing a great job of research and collecting evidence, yes. but but as a whole you know, and also on an individual basis, what are we doing with that to inform our own practice? So there Absolutely. is accountability there. Yes, there's accountability. And we do have some amazing studies out there that are incredibly beneficial. And uh, that's why I'm, I have that YouTube channel to get that evidence out there in small bite-sized chunks so yeah. that it can be easily taken in. But we're still saying in 2022 we're still saying that we need more evidence and we were saying that in world war ii 75 years ago yeah yeah it's a really it's a really interesting um thing to think about the the history of what research and evidence looks like in the field of music therapy and part of that i think the conversation is nuanced depending on what your approach or philosophy or framework is within the music therapy field. Um, you know, I think the way that I was had kind of learned about it and was taught about it was that some approaches to music therapy really value evidence and less procedural or less objective approaches don't. There was kind of this divide that I as a young therapist kind of grew up thinking about, um, which now that I'm in my master's program and am, am actually digging very deeply into research, I'm realizing that that's not um, true or fair, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was an idea that I had for a long time. And I think that's, that's kind of been reinforced in, in a, a broader community in a lot of ways, but uh, you and I had talked about this a little bit because I, I asked you a question that I love to ask everybody. And so I'm going to ask it now. Sure. Um, if you had to, knowing that you are a statistician and kind of the world that you come from, 
and your background. What is your um, your kind of approach to music therapy or what would you say that your framework is for the work that you do in music therapy? Mm-hmm. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I probably would have said cognitive behavioral therapy, NMT, mm-hmm. um, more of the the behavioral side of things. Sure. But as, as I've delved into the spiritual world a bit deeper, I'm starting to incorporate that into my practice. So I'm in- including that it's like the spiritual techniques and ideas in, mm-hmm. in my practice and um and i, I want to be clear it's not like just having them listen to frequencies but sure. it's 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 more closely related to dialectic behavioral therapy gotcha um, so that that's a, a a very closely related world and um dbt comes out of buddhist principles the, the the practice of radical acceptance is a Buddhist principle. But there are laws, spiritual laws that we can include. Uh, hermeticism has, they call it the law of rhythm. I think it's misnamed. I think it should be the law of tempo. Because <laughs> um, it, it, it says that the, the speed that something comes in is the speed that it will go out. Um, the, the Taoism has this great philosophy on just being empty and how when you're empty that's when you're the most useful so mm-hmm. like a cup a cup is the most useful it has the most potential when there's nothing in it sure and that's a that's a great metaphor like the guitar is a great metaphor for that if you take the hole out of the guitar it stops being a, a guitar yeah even pythagoras centuries ago said all is number and he was he was working on frequencies Sure. On on sounds and and converting that into numbers. So it all comes it all comes together when you take a more spiritual approach, at least at least for me. Um, And I'm I'm able to because all is number, I'm able to extract that out of the patients and then take a step back objectively and look at it. But even if it's more subjective, because even validated surveys we we try to say that they're objective and we look at them objectively they're a subjective experience they're the patients talking about their subjective experience just in through numbers Mm -hmm. um and that goes to another spiritual principle of of all is mind all is mental like there's nothing that comes out into this world that doesn't first come from the mind and being able to take that all is number look back at it and and say, oh, well, this is what we're doing. This is what we need to do. And this is what we're doing. So let's talk about how we can do that moving forward. I think it's so interesting that that is the, the approach that you come from. And I can see the connection between the data and your approach when you explain it that way. So essentially what I'm, I'm taking away from the point that you're making um, is that regardless of your approach to music therapy, it is very possible to take quality data and to to gather evidence from your practice, whether it's spiritual, creative music therapy based, uh, behavior music therapy based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even even the spiritual people I talk to will say, I'm following the scientific process. It might look a little bit different, but the steps are there and the data I'm collecting are, is, is it working? Yeah. 
Um, but whether you're psychodynamic, psychoanalytic, NMT, you can collect data. You can collect objective, hardcore data that's behavioral based, even in, in psychoanalytic uh, methods. And you can collect more subjective, qualitative data. And actually that collecting both, that's going to get you the most evidence and the most bang for your buck. Because the, the, the numbers are going to let you see the patterns so that you can show something in a, in a figure. Yeah. The, the qualitative words, like the, the patient's experience in their own words, that's going to um, tell you why the pattern's happening, how the pattern's happening. It's going to get you a different picture so you can see the complete picture. What you can do with both of that is, is one, show with the figure and the patterns what's happening, but two, bring in, in the patient's own words, what's happening, because that's going to be your one of your greatest advocacy tools, because I'm, I'm thinking of uh, our service members. They're such a close-knit group of people that they really listen to each other. Yeah. And if you can show service members what other service members are saying, they're going to appreciate that much more than anything else that we can show them. Whereas at the same time, if you're working on establishing services with uh, a veterans hospital, say, the administration is going to want to see the numbers. But yes, the the targeted population wants to know what their their fellow group members say and think and feel about the experience that you're providing. Exactly. And the ad administrative people, uh, they, they love looking at numbers um, because that, that's kind of the only way to see what's happening big picture. But they're not just concerned about if the patients are getting quality care. They're concerned about how many patients that you're seeing, how much funding is coming in per patient, everything related to that. So if we're not collecting that, then we can't advocate for ourselves to one, to keep our job, to get more funding, to get higher pay. Um, so, and, and it's, it seems like every other week now on one of the Facebook MT groups, I, I see a question of what's a full-time therapist's job look like? How many patients should I see? How many hours should I spend outside of ther direct therapy doing all of these random things? And that's something that the data can help us do. Mm. I was just going to say, I'm sure there will probably be people listening and watching that are thinking, yeah, this all is great and good, but I don't have time to do that. I'm not getting paid to do research. I can barely keep up with my caseload. How, how could I even think about applying this to what I'm doing? Um, mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, like, you have yeah. to have some data also to advocate for your practice to be able to to take data to continue to advocate. <laughs> it's kind yes. of a cycle. <laughs> so something's got to give. Um, and I know I know our schedules are so hectic and we end up just exhausted at the end of the day. I've been there. I've seen it in other therapists. It, the thing is, we can't improve our quality of practice. We can't improve our own quality of life mm. without the data, without the evidence. To make that easier, 
the, I've always said the best measures are the ones that you can build in throughout your day. You're already doing it. You're already using it. So just make the data collection folded into the things that you're already doing. Mm-hmm. You already have to document. So when you're documenting, um, make sure that you can throw in some evidence, some numbers, some um, patient feedback that that you can give to that. And that's especially important if you're in an interdisciplinary team, because yes. the IDT is going to want to see what's happening in, the, in, in your sessions. So, but that goes back to what happens in the session and you're actually doing the intervention. I was trained to take data in during the intervention thinking, okay, that was a successful trial. That was not a successful trial. That's so that's one out of two, that's two out of three. Um, or have some kind of before and after measure that you can give to the patient. And I was even trained to say, okay, let's take a second. I got to get these numbers into this Excel file before we can move on to the next intervention. And the patients were okay with that because they they knew they were going to get that data later on. Mm -hmm. But if you're collecting um, like a referral list, why are they sending the referral? what is the patient hoping to get out of it? What's the diagnosis? Those are all things that you can put into a, a survey that goes into like a survey monkey or a checkbox or something that stores all of the data on the back end for you. So you can pull it and then and then look at the data as a whole. Yeah. So there are ways to to build this into your practice so that you're not really doing anything extra. Hmm. Yeah, because... We are, you know, we are all documenting. That is something that is required by AMTA, our our code of ethics, our standards of practice. That is something that we're already doing. Now, that can look like a million different things depending on the facility and the environment and what kind of information we need to keep track of. But I like this idea of, of kind of making that documentation work for you and kind of streamlining the process. And, um, that was the kind of the purpose of why I saw your video in the first place was because you, you had designed an Excel sheet that was very user-friendly for tracking data. Um, so would you recommend that that's a good place for music therapists to start? Who's who might be thinking, Oh boy, how do I even go about this? Um, I put out the Excel, the that Excel spreadsheet just to show that you don't need a lot of money to yeah. to get started. It, building that Excel file does take a bit of time because you have to design what you want. You have to figure out what you want, design how to put it into Excel, um, make a backend file to even collect the data to begin with, then, um, then compile everything. So Excel gets a bit hard to deal with, but that is an option. Especially if you're if you're barely making ends meet, which I know a lot of our therapists are, um, but there are other data collection systems. Uh, I don't want to name anything because it, it depends on um, like your preferences and things like that. But sure. it, but you can go to a um, like an a canned out of the box system that will collect the data for you on the back end, even your documentation. Mm-hmm. So that if you're consistent with what you're documenting, you can pull that data w- when you need it. Um, and and this even goes back to like doing your assessment. If you have if you have patients uh, for, 
continuing from year to year, you can do an assessment every year to see where they're going and look at that data and check over time what's happening with your patients through that through that standardized assessment. Yeah. So and there there's many different levels of of quality of data. Um that without going into too much detail, but um your perception of what's happening is going to be different than the patient's perspective of what's happening. Um, surveys with validated measures might be seen as more, more valid. Um, but there are things like emotions that we can't quantify. Well, we can put them into a a Likert scale, but I like, if you were my patient and I, it's hard for me to say that, you're angry when you could be sad. It's just expressing as anger. Sure. Um, but uh, physiologically, the emotions don't come across, and that so it be, that only becomes a subjective measure as as being valid. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, and I think that's where a lot of conversations about research and evidence in music therapy have kind of struggled to come to some agreement is just the all of the nuances of an organic therapy relationship and there's there's so much going on and there are so many layers but i think for us keeping it simple and and really identifying what we need to know about what we're doing um and kind of teasing that out of our own practice so that we can hone in and not not try to capture everything about what music therapy is because we can't do that Mm -hmm but really targeting what specifically about our, our practice we need to be tracking for each individual. Mm-hmm. And even if it's like a survey for the interdisciplinary team that you're working with, mm-hmm. a, a 10 question survey every year, maybe you don't look at every, all 10 questions every year. You look, you collect data, you collect all data for every year, but you only look at the one question um, and then the next year you look at the second question. So there there are ways to make this bite-sized and manageable and and less overwhelming because uh, as therapists, we tend to be perfectionists. We tend to want to see everything all at once. And, and that's one that's very difficult for us to do, but it, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just, we just need to get started. Mm. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. I think one other thing that is probably helpful too is, is, and I don't know how, how, maybe you have an idea about how to go about this, but um, finding some kind of accountability or supervision or community around trying to figure this out, because like you said, we're not trained researchers. And so it could be very daunting um, to think about how to get started. So I've seen CMTEs on how to collect data with with your hands full. How to like you're in an intervention. How do you collect that data? What trials are you looking for? What what objective information are you looking for that you can say, yes, this happened, this did not. Um, so th- they are out there, and they they're not that hard to find. Even if you just go to a research CMTE to say, uh, to get more information on how to read the research. Yeah. And that might even mean looking outside of, of a music therapy course, Mm -hmm. but still 
very applicable to what we're doing as clinicians, which, you know, coming from the world of psychology. <laughs> if you're needing more resources and support, um, I, I that, that's what I want to do. I want to be that, that resource and support for you. That's why I put out the YouTube channel. That's why I'm getting on these podcasts so that you can know there's someone out here who knows how to do this and, and can help you do it. So um, you can check out my YouTube channel. You can um, contact me if you're needing support. Um, if you like, if you have a grant that needs funding or an accreditation body that needs to see the data at a group level, uh, or even just to get started to say, hey, I'm overwhelmed. Can I get some ideas? I'm, I, I, I'm happy to do that. I want to be that person to do that because I know, I know how effective we are. And I want to get the data out there to show other people how effective we are. Mm, absolutely. And I think um, you are an incredible resource. So all of our listeners, if, <laughs> if check him out for sure. And like I said, I'm going to be sure to link all of your info and your, your YouTube and your socials to um, this episode so that everybody can access that really easily. But thank you, JD, so much. Um, I think this is a really intriguing conversation within the world of music therapy that we don't always hear a lot about unless we're in a research class or something right. like that. So, um, I, I hope to continue this conversation and, and see it grow, um, as we continue to progress, um, towards an evidence-based field and, yes. um, keeping with that pursuit. So thank you so much for your time and all of the work that you're doing for music therapy. And, and, and thank you for having me on. This was amazing. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Wow. Such a great conversation. And a big thank you to JD for joining us on Music Therapy and Beyond. Make sure that you're following along for all of the resources and updates on our social media at Music Therapy and Beyond. Or check out our website, musictherapyandbeyond.com. You can also head over to our shop and our Patreon, and all of the links to stay connected will be in the episode notes. Until next time.